are listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and Ivy faculty member Eric Jansen will anchor the session. Here with Josh Dominguez from Flash Food. Josh, thanks for making the time, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, uh, it's awesome. Appreciate you coming in to share the story. Yeah, I'm lucky that I didn't get caught in the snow or there's not bad weather for the drive. Great weather for a drive down <laughs> from Toronto. Yeah, exactly. I want to rewind the tape back. Were you, where did entrepreneurship come from? Were you parents, grandparents, friends? Like, where did you get the bug? So both of my parents started a lawn sprinkler company together. My dad was an immigrant from Portugal and my mom was from New Brunswick. And my dad started working in the irrigation business and then he ended up leaving one of his bosses and starting the company with my mom. So my whole life... Growing up at the table, everything was around the family business. Like that's all they would talk about for the most part. I've got three other siblings, so there's four of us. I'm the third child. And to me, I played hockey at a high level and I knew that whenever hockey was done, I was gonna do something for myself. So I always thought like there'd be a couple years where I'm basically in training of like learning how other people deal with business or or different things in life, and then eventually like starting my own thing. So did you work for the family business growing up or <laughs> I observe? Worked, I worked one day when I was 14 and then I retired. My dad <laughs> told me to put like these flags that you see uh, on irrigation sites. He told me to put them in a straight line for like a hundred meters. And then, so I put them down and then my dad comes back and he starts yelling at me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? I put flags down for a hundred meters. He's like, they're all crooked. So he walks through and like reorgs all the flags and I'm like, okay, that's it. I retire. Like I'm going to go play hockey. You're done. Yeah. Done. I'm done. So then I just worked at like hockey camps after that. And my two older brothers and my younger sister are all in the family business now. <laughs> so uh, it definitely was in your family. And I was going to bring up, so you, it's funny, in doing some research here, I found a press release when the Brantford Blast re-signed right winger Josh Dominguez to bring some added toughness and grit uh, yeah. to the right wing. Um, so do you think that part of your experience playing competitive hockey led to you becoming an entrepreneur or helped you be an entrepreneur in any way? It's it's so wild. So I played in the OHL. I played for Owen Sound. So I played at the John Labatt Center, which I think is called something different now. Budweiser. Budweiser, yeah. yeah. So like 10,000 fans. Uh, like, And when I was in junior, I wasn't good enough to just be a skill guy. So I'd have to fight sometimes and do like all the grunt work that like you'd have to do in hockey to try and get yourself noticed. And there is no more risky scenario than being in front of five or 10,000 fans that are screaming and you drop your gloves and you square off with someone at center ice because there's so many different dynamics that come into play. You have like the fear of getting hit in the face and like bleeding or like breaking your nose, like physical injury. You have the fear of making a mistake and then your teammates will laugh at you. You have the fear of the crowd laughing at you. And then you also have the fear of not being good enough to stay at this level. So you are, when you get in a scenario like that, you are completely vulnerable and when I was coming up through junior, like YouTube was a thing too. So I'm like, oh my God, like if I don't do well in like a fight, then I'm like so many bad things will happen from that. So that was one thing. And like I fought a couple of times. I wasn't like the, the toughest guy, uh, but also just being in shape, eating the right things, training the, the right way, sleeping properly. At a really young age, I was doing that like very strictly. So 
those things now that I look back on. So there, there's those things. And then the most important aspect for me was being a teammate. So I always had a leadership role in a lot of teams that I was on. And for me, being kind of like a middle of the pack player on my team, I had to be a good guy in the dressing room. People had to like me. It was something that I had to do to stay at a high level. And you can pick people that are not good people off really quickly on a team. And that skill set has helped me immensely now as a CEO of a startup. Like when people come in, I could see through people pretty quickly if there's ego or if they're treating me differently than they're treating other people. Like a lot of things don't go unnoticed. And that's a skill set that I have that I'm fortunate for. And it came from playing a team sport my whole life. So judging, say that's a superpower, like being able to judge someone's character or what they're really like quickly. I would say it's le- maybe, yes, but also like if you're not sure, being able to get to the bottom of it relatively quickly. So if I have like an inkling, I'm not like, I'm not stubborn or like arrogant enough to be like, oh, this is how this person is, but I'm intelligent enough to be like, I got to like ask a couple different questions and see how this person is in different elements. Hmm. So not being, uh, not being afraid to actually ask the tough questions to figure yeah. out what people are actually like. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Your second point, the self-care one, I find really interesting because a lot of people, we've had a lot of guests on who talk about sort of being younger, graduating from school and then starting their first thing. I feel like people forget self-care for like five to 10 years and then maybe realize it again once they come out on the other side of a startup or something. And I've, I've had a lot of friends that played in the OHL and I feel like you learn really early the benefit of habits like, mm-hmm. like leading indicators that are going to eventually lead to something better and self-care. Like if you don't get the right recovery, sleep, diet, then you probably feel it on the ice. Mm-hmm. So things that people maybe don't learn for 10 years when they're an entrepreneur that you learn mm-hmm. pretty early in competitive sports. You also learn how it affects your performance. I mean, like you did CrossFit uh, competitively and were a serious athlete. Like, you know, you know, going into a gym or going into competition or going into work, if like you've cut corners and as soon as you like get into that routine and you're not performing like you like you should be you're like ah geez like if i could have just like not had a big mac yesterday or like any little thing like for people that are really self-aware you're honest with yourself and yeah i mean like i got fat after school like i played hockey at university and then after that like i worked on bay street for a couple years like i got fat and then it was really difficult to get back into shape and now i just turned 30 not long ago and i'm doing more reading than i ever have on diet and i always told myself when i was playing that when i was done playing i'd be in the best shape of my life because i wouldn't have to spend two hours a day on the ice that wasn't the case but now being 30 versus being in my teens or in my early 20s it was more difficult to get back into shape but i'm way more aware of like eating and the things that you have to eat and the way that you're eating and like what that does to your body. And I see what it, how it does to me, like from a business perspective. So, I mean like this week, for example, I'm typically doing like OMAD now. So one meal a day. So I fast the whole day and I just eat dinner. And then when I kind of like fall out of whack, I'll do a 48 hour fast. So just this week I had dinner on Sunday night and then I didn't eat again until Tuesday like three hours before a meeting with a big grocer in Dallas. And it's actually easier to do that when you're traveling because like you're just in an airport anyway, like you have a couple soda waters anyways, like I could bore you, but yeah, I, I, to me now there's another thing here too. I met with a founder the other day who's 24 and really successful, really impressive company. Just raised a lot of money. Like 
it, he's really intellectual. And I was sitting across from him and he's like talking about the grind and talking about like being in it. And he's like, yeah, I put on weight. Like I've got to like try and think about like how I'm carrying my body from now on. But like I work so much and I actually think that you get a higher return on your time at work if you focus on yourself first. And I think that's true of our company. Like I think it's more important to put people in front of what you're doing and the output is far more superior over a long amount of time. So I'm now four years into our business and like we'll go into the early story, but I don't feel like I don't feel like I have to get to an end. I don't feel like uh, oh my god, I'm drowning. I like what I'm doing. I like the people that I'm doing it with because of my background being on a team. And we focus on ourselves before we focus on work or whatever. And that makes a big difference, I think. That's great. I teach a class here called Hustle and Grit. And the Hustle and Grit course, I think we we spend a lot of time in, I don't know, education talking about the nuts and bolts of startups. How do you come up with an idea, raise money, pitch, you know, those sorts of things. Hustle and Grit's about the person, like self-care and mental health and uh, what motivates you and those sorts of things. So cool to hear you talk about that. Like mm-hmm. you're running a marathon, but you're going to be able to do it because you're going about it the right way smart smart yeah i mean like we'll see it's it's going well right now it could seems blow, to be working could blow up at any time like but yeah i mean like i feel confident about it and and you're right like the other thing too is when you challenge yourself physically you get more confident mentally so when things go sideways or like challenges arise in the business if i'm consistently challenging myself physically i feel better to handle those things that happen with the business yeah yeah no doubt so you said you you played competitive hockey then you worked on bay street for a bit so you were investment advisor management consultant i saw that you put you did some time uh working with, at sage i think with pro yeah. athletes yeah so what was that phase <laughs> like you you had this entrepreneurial inkling but you what ignored it put it off for a few years what yeah. happened there yeah because i was only exposed to a small family bit small family business but a family business my whole life and then I think I was the only one in my family to graduate university, which is funny because I was like by far the dumbest out of my siblings. And like, I mean that not like self-deprecating. Like if you looked at grades and transcripts, like I was the worst student, but did well in school and didn't know what I wanted to do. But when I got to school, I realized that like, okay, I'm not going to play in the NHL. I'm probably not even going to play pro hockey. Like I don't really want to go in like the minor leagues and grind it out. So I had really good grades at university, came out of school started on Bay Street as an investment advisor so I basically worked on a team I was cold calling for one of the biggest one of the biggest teams you were in sales and, sales right out of oh university yeah. yeah yeah like legitimately like 200 dials a day we were calling small business owners and trying to convince them to give us their personal savings so first you try and book a meeting and then you go through the whole process and I couldn't be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for that sales experience and it was like a boiler room style work And during that time while I was doing it, I got accepted to law school. So I had applied and I hadn't heard back yet. And everybody rejected me, but Ottawa and Ottawa finally accepted me. So I went to my boss at the time and they had a training program for people to go in and build their own book of business. And there were targets associated with that. So I went in and I said, look, like his name was Dwight. I said, Dwight, I got into law school. I'm either going to go to law school or I want to do this on my own. I don't want to work for you anymore. And he's like, okay, here's your targets. It was like, August when I got in and I had to decide by the end of the month and November was the next training program. So he's like, here's your targets. If you hit them, you can go in the next training program. You'll be the youngest person who's done it. 
like gone in that early like i don't think you're ready i don't even think you'd be ready if you hit these targets but like it is what it is i'm like okay so i hit the targets got in the training program did it for about a year and was like building my own book of business and i remember we had a sales coach who came in every two weeks he was like this 70 year old guy who like did not take care of himself and no matter whether you were doing well or horrible he would tell you how bad you were doing and it's like this is so ineffective like you're not coaching me you're just literally every two weeks telling me the same thing so i remember coming out of that meeting and like looking around at some of the other brokers in the office who are like in their 50s or 60s and these people are bringing in like they're making personally north of a million dollars a year and they're all miserable and i remember like coming out of this sales meeting where the sales coach is telling me like how useless i am essentially and he's telling me to be like these other people and i look around at the other people and i'm like these people are not happy so i'm like okay like I'm young in my career. Like, I don't want to be doing this. So I left that and I started management consulting because a friend was there. They they got me a job. And there I learned basically like process engineering. So it was, and this is valuable, I think, for the listener base, but it was a company called Carpedia International. They're based out of Oakville and they work with companies, mainly like operating companies and the projects are typically longer, but let's say it's a three month project. So your first month you get dropped in, you spend time with everybody in the business and you take down what they're doing. And then you separate all of their time by green time or red time. Green time is value added. Red time is non-value added. And then the second month, and then you find out how much the average person makes. You find out what the loss is from red time. The second month, you work with those same people that you've worked with before that work at these companies, and you figure out why they had all this red time, like what were the blocks for them and their companies, and you come up with strategies to implement. And then the third month, you implement those strategies, and you tie it back to the ROI, and you actually show the savings. So the projects were longer than three months, but like that's how they, how they worked. And I did that for about a year and a half in three different projects, and I'm like, okay, I've learned how this works. Like I don't want to stay here forever. And then my old agent playing hockey was a pretty prominent NHL agent, still is. And we sat down and we were just like talking about whatever. And he's like, listen, we have some of our young clients uh, in this family office that manages money for the NHL players. Like, would you want to come on and do that? We don't have anybody running it. So I did that for a year and a half. We had six guys that were NHL players and I was basically flying around North America meeting with NHL players, more or less like getting them to sign papers and like, don't buy these stupid things. But that was really fascinating because you saw the difference between like some people who came up with money, some people who cared about money a lot, some people who didn't care about money. And you could start to see at an early age what that does to a person, what that does to a family uh, for people that like dealt with it intelligently and people that didn't. So that was really eye-opening too. And then from there, I left and started Flash Food. I feel like you've had some really interesting like key learnings from each of those. It was like sales in the beginning process and eliminating you know on not useful time so working super effectively and then almost like this grown-up insight of like the way that money impacts people either positively or negatively so like big takeaways from each of those three experiences i think what people specifically people that are coming out of school are not open like it's so cookie cutter right like you come out of school you take a job for two years and then you try and get into an, an MBA program and then you go into debt even further and then you come out and you're like now you're making like between 100 and 130 depending whether you're in banking or consulting which is generally where you get filtered into and you get caught in this loop where you never have the opportunity to be creative and so I would have loved to be in that loop at the time but I didn't get accepted to the right schools well 
like the school that I went to was a good hockey school. I went to St. Mary's in Halifax, but it was so far away that like I couldn't land a good consulting job and like I wouldn't get into a good MBA because I didn't have that background. So I didn't have the opportunity to like go that route and I couldn't make my way into investment banking. So I started as a broker, which was sales. And what I did when I realized that I didn't want to be an investment, like an investment advisor was I was like, okay, like what am I learning from this? What can I take from this? And how can I get more seasoned? So to me, it didn't matter how long I stayed somewhere. For me, it was like, once I feel like I've learned enough and I don't want to go deeper at this job, move on to the next one. And I didn't care about the optics of that and what it would look like in a, in a LinkedIn profile or a resume. Because when I sit across from somebody who's intelligent and they're thinking about hiring me or not, I could communicate it that way. And they're like, all right, like this is somebody that we can trust that's relatively intelligent. And that's what I found. Yeah, your story, the, like the way that you tell mm -hmm. the story makes logical sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you left and Flash Food came right after. So you left to start Flash Food or you oh. left? Did you get it on the rails while you were still working or did you quit and then? The idea happened. Yeah, the idea happened. So when I left the when I left BMO initially before I became a consultant, I wanted to start a company that was a robo advisor. So the same thing as Wealth Simple. There was a couple companies doing it in the states at the time, and to me it was like this is just so obvious. So I tried to bootstrap and like hire international developers and get a product built and couldn't because I didn't know what I was doing. Wealth Simple raises money and then like I end up getting disinterested. I go to consulting, whatever. So. When I was still at Sage in the family office, the Bank of Scotland fired 250 of their financial advisors and everybody who had less than $200,000 of assets in the bank now got rolled into their proprietary robo-advisor, which is like just a financial service platform. And I was like, okay, like I couldn't execute, but like the vision that I had and like the market that I was thinking of is maturing in front of my eyes like well simple had just raised a bunch of money from power corp like this is a thing so i told myself the next time i get like this kind of feeling i'm just going full tilt into it and the story with flash food is my sister was a chef she gave me a call after a catering event and she's like i just threw out four thousand dollars worth of food i started laughing i'm like you're an idiot why would you do that she's like no this feeling sucks like my boss was over top of my shoulder and like basically yelling at me to throw it out like I feel horrible. So I calmed her down. For the next few days, I started reading about food waste. And what I learned is when food gets thrown out, most times it ends up in a landfill, gets covered by their garbage. And when it rots, it doesn't have any oxygen. And that produces methane gas. So the statistic is if international food waste were a country, it'd be the third leading cause of greenhouse gas emission behind the US and China. So it's not cars and factories, it's food. And there's so many people that are hungry. So that was like the problem that I learned. And at the time I lived in downtown Toronto on top of a grocery store and I had to figure out two things. Like naturally the, these grocers can't be selling everything in their stores. Like there's no way. So I had to figure out how much food they throw out every day and what's the lead time from the time they throw it out till the sell by date. Cause then you got to think like, is there even an opportunity here? And what I learned was the average store throws out like between five and $10,000 worth of food every day. And it's anywhere from two or three days to sometimes weeks before the sell-by date. If you think about Thanksgiving the next day, Christmas the next day, Halloween the next day, like all that food generally is getting tossed. And then it's not just a grocer problem, it's a consumer problem. Like when you and I go shopping and if we're going for chicken breast, we're reaching at the back for whatever has the longest shelf life, all the near dated stuff moves to the front and the grocers have to pull that because people won't take it. 
And on the flip side, if we go buy a watermelon and there's only one there, as consumers, we assume it's the worst one, so they have to overstock the shelves. And if they wanted to get rid of all that food and donate it, all of it, it's logistics that's a challenge. Who picks it up? Who drops it off? Who pays the price? And who guarantees the safety? So all of these things combined, I'm sitting at my condo and I'm like, geez, if there's a way for this store to mark the price of the food down, I could see the deal through my phone, pay through my phone, and pick it up in the store the same day. People would shop like that all the time. And that's exactly what we built. We took the discount food rack, made it look sexy, put it on your cell phone. And there was like a whole bunch of stuff, really like as we talk about my background, like the consulting aspect of my background, going into like understanding process and how to work with people to create new things and strategies and tie it back to the financials. Like that experience at Carpedia was the most invaluable that I've had because learning how to cut through an organization and like change manage people, we couldn't be doing what we were doing if it wasn't for that. How'd you prove out some of this? So you said... A couple things here. So you first said the experience of ha having missed out on the robo advisor thing was like you felt the pain of not acting. You kind of acted like yeah. you put money to have something developed, but yeah. didn't take it far enough. Yeah. So you were looking like you were yeah. actively looking for the next thing. Yeah. You had primed yourself to look for the next thing. So you were ready. You had the pain of missing out on the other one. So mm -hmm. you were looking and you were ready to act on the next thing. And the mm -hmm. next thing you said, I'm going to whatever it is, if I feel this way, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. So then found the thing. You said you had to prove two things, that the delta between the sell-by date and the throw-out date uh, was, there's enough of a window to actually. So how did you prove that out? I talked to people at the stores. I went to like a whole bunch of stores, talked to everybody, like meat managers, people in like the deli departments. Like I talked to everybody in stores and they're the ones who told me the volume. They're the ones who told me like the time. Like there's no research on this stuff. Like grocers never want to get out this kind of data. So I just had to talk to people on the ground. I'm thinking like my dad's been in the grocery industry for probably 30 years, maybe more since high school. Huh? And, uh, yeah, he'll, he'll talk to, he could talk to God love him, talk to a lampshade for half an hour. You know, he's just, he'll talk, he loves yeah. to talk. And so if you went in his store and asked him uh, like how much produce he said, he'd know the numbers like that. Yep. So you just walked in there and started talking to people. Yeah. 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 A whole bunch of them. Not downloading market research reports, Googling, uh, you actually went and talked to real people. These grocers like weren't even tracking, like they weren't even tracking how much food they were throwing out for the most part. Like they had, they were just starting to try and figure it out because it's been a cost of doing business for, for so long. So even that in of itself, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is such an inefficiency. But yeah, just talk to people. Like yeah. get outside of the building, go talk to real yeah, people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So why won't was when i was a student i shopped yeah. at loblaws it was just the closest thing shopped at loblaws they would slap the 50 percent off sticker on it so were they doing that and still not selling it and still throwing out a bunch like why don't grocers just throw a 75 percent off sticker on something when you do that so yeah that's it like partially there's they're doing that and still not selling it partially they don't want to sell all their product at 50 percent off when you put a sticker on a product and leave it in the store the only person who's going to buy that is somebody who's coming willing to buy a full price item right so what we've done and what we were able to prove through the app is that we're actually driving in new customers that weren't shopping at your store beforehand got so it we're driving new customers that are spending more money while they're in store on full price items got it so the problem with the 50 percent off is I was willing to go in and buy the normal apples, but I saw a 50% off, so I'll get those instead. 
Also, it's not like like you want that. So what I'm learning now about retail anything, particularly grocery, is that you have different customers that are going to shop different ways. So you want to have an offering for people that are only going to buy the sticker program. You want an offer. You want to have an offering for people that are only going to get delivery, people that are only going to have pickup, people that want to sit down in a grocery store and have a coffee. Like grocers have to to think that way now. So we also got lucky on the timing of the market because it's changing so drastically. Yeah. So um, how was the initial, how did you get the initial sell? So you, you I mean, this, is, this is like an overwhelming for me, cool idea, yeah. but I'm thinking there's so much to figure out yeah. here. Like, oh, yeah. oh my God, I've got to get <laughs> yeah. retailers on board and then I've got to get people to download an app yeah. and like logistically <laughs> there's just like, where did you even start? So we got a, I hired a team off of Upwork to build the app and it was a team in China, I think. And the name of the person was Nazima and they had a picture of an Asian woman. And I didn't know until like five months later before the app was even done that if you reverse Google that image of that person on their Skype, it was like a famous Chinese actress. So I have no idea who built the first version of the app. And also they would never talk to me. We only talked through Skype. They wouldn't talk to me on voice call or video only typing. And like the English was so horribly broken. So I have no idea who built the first version of the app. And the way that we got our first grocer was a guy that I went to university with his dad was a former CEO of a big retailer in Canada, and his right-hand person ended up being a guy named Jeff York, who is now the co-CEO of a grocery chain called Farm Boy that's based in Ottawa. So Jeff used to play hockey. He has a hockey background, and he's, I don't know, maybe like mid to late 40s, early 50s. So I got connected through my friend's dad to Jeff. The 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 flash food deck went through to him, and, and I ended up getting his like contact info, and I'm emailing him back and forth, and then he just starts ghosting me. So it was like uh, Tuesday of whatever week it was. I was making no money. I'd quit my job at Sage, and I'm literally like, how the hell do I get a grocer? So I call Jeff. His, his phone number is on the bottom of the email, and I call him, and I'm like, hey, Jeff, Josh Dominguez. He's like, hey, how you doing? Good. Listen, I'm coming out to Ottawa because Farm Boy's based in Ottawa. I was like, I'm coming out to Ottawa on Friday because we're looking at hiring somebody for Eastern Canada. We don't have any stores. We have nothing. Like this app is being built by somebody who I've never talked to in my life. And I'm like, uh, are you free to like sit down and like talk shop while I'm there? He's like, yeah, sure. Come by the store at 10 a.m. I'm like, perfect. So Hold on, let me see if that works with my uh, calendar. Oh yeah, yeah my calendar work. of yeah. nothing. Yeah, okay, yeah, that should fit in well here. Well, the funny thing is, like, I'm telling my like now wife, who's my girlfriend, all this, and she's like, well, like what? Like, how, like what are you gonna tell him? I'm like, I don't know. So I wake up at four in the morning on Friday. And I drive to Ottawa. I meet Jeff at the store for like 25 minutes of that, like 10 minutes. He's on the phone talking to somebody else. Give him an idea of like what we want to do. And he's like, okay, yeah, we'll give you a store in London, Ontario. Cause it's like the furthest away from their hub in Ottawa. He's like, we'll give you a store out there. Like, good luck. All right. Shake his hand. and like drove right back to Toronto. It was like a 25 minute meeting. And that ended up like, man, we did, we did both farm boy and we did, another grocer in Canada, three-store pilots, like meaningful grocers with no contract. So like we're selling near dated food. You're like, you want to talk about risk? Like now, now we're like, we're well past that. Now everything's contracted. Like things are done properly, but I have investors now that are like trying to put money into our company. Like fortunately we're at that point and they're talking to me about like, well, like what if you miss out on this or what if you miss out on that? Like you're being too risky on the market in front of you. And I'm thinking like, 
we just sold food that was near expiry, like basically having like all the liability on us for two years. Like this is not risky in comparison to what we did. So yeah, like we got one per actually funny story about farm boy. We got one store in London, Ontario and the model was horrible. Like the, the app was so bad. The experience this was the app that you this, had developed. This was the app that I had developed by the team in China. The experience was brutal. We actually came to Western and we had a pizza party at Western and we convinced people to come out for free pizza. And then we gave them credits or we just gave them, we just e-transferred the money to, to try the app. And in that first week, so we launched like the one store for, we didn't know how long it was going to be. We had no contract sign. So basically this like operator in London who like already has so much on his plate gets this new thing dropped on him. So he doesn't even like me. Nobody in the store likes us. And we run a one store pilot and it only goes a week. And in that week, like we didn't know how long it was going to go, but in that week we saw, we had like, I don't know, 11 people that bought and of the 11, like six or seven of them bought a second time in a one week time period. And we sold like almost half of the food they made available. So we meet with farm boy, that same operator who didn't like me at the end of that week. And he's like, listen, like we're starting to get some backlash on like the app and how bad it is and how slow it is and how miserable the process is. And like, they had no access to the numbers. So they didn't know what they had sold. They didn't know what they made available. Like we knew that. So selling whatever it was, like almost 50% of the food, like repeat customers that were new to farm boy. So I'm like, okay, why don't we do this, Ryan? Like, why don't we just we have a whole bunch of things we have to fi figure out with the app. Let's just take this out of the store today. We'll rebuild it and we'll come back in January. So this is like October. And he's like, you know what? That actually sounds like a way better idea. And for him, he was just like getting a headache from his store staff. So for him, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't ever want to think about this again. And for me, we stopped that day in the store. And that was like one of the riskiest decisions that I met because that I made because we only had one store. We only had one opportunity. But I knew the numbers and uh, that was really it. Like I knew the numbers and I'm like, shit, like this is not going to be sustainable. So we ended up pulling out. We hired an agency in Toronto. We raised a little bit of money at that time. We hired an agency in Toronto. They built the next version of the app, which like is still the foundation now. It's just like a, a really good agency in Toronto came back to that one and then we pitched the metrics to farm boy and they were like wow okay like the fact that we were in and out of the store so quickly we didn't let it linger long enough that people had a really bad experience employees and so they saw the results and they're like okay like maybe there's something here so they gave us another store and we started in another store that january and then eventually we had three stores in london and then eventually we had three stores with longos that came on and through that whole time me and my team were driving to london all the time like we were in stores all the time talking to people, trying to figure out how to make it easier. And I think the store staff, seeing how hard we were working, like they just, I don't know if it was pitied us or like appreciated us, but they were giving us really useful feedback, which is kind of like the theme of what we're going to talk about today. But they saw how bad we wanted it and they aligned with the mission of reducing food waste. Back to the story about my sister who had to throw out food. So they wanted it, they wanted it to work too. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, gutsy call, but the right call when I think about if you let it linger, few people use it, issues and complaints pile up, that could have been it. You yeah. know, that that could have been, yeah. flash food may not, that, that could have been the end. That could have been the first and last pilot. We would have 100% failed. Like, yeah. like, it's not even, like, it would have absolutely, like, crashed and burned. Yeah, so pull it out, 
So you raised the money to develop the app properly? Is that... We had raised... On those metrics that we had from that one store, we had... Uh, yeah, we raised... We actually had... There's a group in Toronto and whatever, I don't care. I think it's public. I think it's on their website, but they own the Chase Hospitality Group. So they own like Colette, Littlefin, Casamoto, and Yorkville. Like they own a bunch of restaurants, high-end restaurants. And at the time we were going to do this in restaurants too. So before I had gone out and raised money from any friends and family, I was like, I have to get somebody who's actually going to like, who's not my friends and family that's going to write a check. And they were the first ones that wrote the first check. And it was... A significant check, like significant at the time. Yeah, every check is significant into a startup. So when they put the money in, then I told everybody else, here's our metrics, here's what we're doing. We're going into another store in January, and here's who wrote the first check. And that's where like other money came in. So we ended up raising 450K that first round. 100,000 of it went to getting the app developed. But like even funnier, we had, (laughs) you're like, we're talking about early days. We had our first, our CTO, I got introduced to, because I'm not technical. I'm like the app that I built is basically broken. And, and not basically screenshots. Yeah, I, I want to see. I want to see. Oh the man, original. it's so bad. Um, but there was a guy that I got introduced to who was on a sabbatical. He had sold a digital agency, and he was at Salesforce after, and he just got ground down. So he's like, "I'm just chilling. I'm just gonna. I'm just going to like consult with people for the rest of the year." So he was consulting on the on the app that we had built from the Asian team, and he's the one who told me like. I don't even know who's building this. And I was trying to convince him to join the company. We had no money. We hadn't even, we had not yet got our first check. And then I'm pushing, I'm pushing. We're paying this guy like a couple thousand dollars to like do an audit on the tech. And he comes back and he's like, it's actually not horrible, but these are the things you need to switch around. And we ended up getting our first 60K in the door. And what I did was I found, uh, we're in Toronto, like, I found a two-story loft in Liberty Village, and we signed a three-year lease. It was like $4,000 a month. We had 60 k in the bank. No idea how much more money was coming in. Signed a three-year lease, went on Kijiji, bought a whole bunch of used furniture, me and my CFO, and we drove all around like the GTA. We packed the place, and we were like, like to our CT to the guy who was doing the tech audit, we're like, Chris, why don't you just at least like come check out the office? So he's like, Yeah, all right, I'll come by later this week. So Chris walks in the office. He's like, Wow, like yeah, you guys have like a, a real, real thing. You guys have a real thing here. All right, fine, I'll join. Forget my sabbatical. That's how we got our CTO. So like that could have blown up the company too. And I had no idea how much more money was coming in. And so where does uh, <laughs> ridiculous, by the way, ridiculous, but whatever, whatever needs to get done. Yeah. <laughs> where did the Dragon's Den experience fit in? So was this That's a cool story? Was it after all of this? Yeah, it was after this. So because I, I watched the episode season 12. Yeah. And the story is a good story. They were they were pretty bought in, yeah. but the metrics were like not <laughs> they were right, right? Like it was, t- it was yeah. t- there wasn't enough there yet. Yeah. To, so how where did that fit in? So that so it's funny that you asked because that happened the show got aired got filmed in the beginning of April and in my episode didn't air till the end of October. And they filmed for 45 minutes and then they put four minutes of it on TV. So like, I had no idea what was going on TV, but yeah, we had just at that time, we had just got back into that one store in January and like, it wasn't doing much volume, but like the percentages were still like on point as what we saw in the first pilot. But how I got on the show was I met Michelle Romano at a conference in Ottawa, SAS North, the 
October before the show aired. So we were about to start the first pilot that like, no, I think we had just finished that pilot that like we were now hiring an agency in Toronto to build the app. So I meet Michelle at this conference and I introduce myself to her, talk for a couple of minutes. She's like, yeah, I know what you guys are doing. Somebody has sent me like the flash food deck. Like, I think it's cool. She's like, here's my personal email. Send me an email in March and I'll get you on the show and I'll offer you a deal because I like what you're doing. And if you take it, you take it. If not, whatever. I'm like, all right. So sure enough, like I send her an email in March, no response. Send her a follow-up. She gets back to me. She's like, here's this, connects me to the producer, like gets me to the, like the final interview phase. And then I go on the show and she's the one who like jumps up with the deal with an offer on the show. And I was like, wow, like regardless of whatever, she actually came through. And it was really, really cool. That's neat. That's yeah. neat. Did, so you did a deal on the show. Did, did it end deal, up going through? Did a deal on the show did not go through, yeah. which like often they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I didn't go through is because they wanted, from the show, they wanted six months to do, to do due diligence. And we were like on the last legs of that 450K, like that was almost gone. So I'm like, even if I want to do this, guys, like if you take longer than like a month here, like we're bankrupt. Like right. it's over. I need other options. Yeah, it's over. Like we can't, we can't, like I can't even think of outside of this because like six months, like I'm probably going to be at my fourth career job by then. Like, right. <laughs> like that's, that's how this is going. So right you now. said no go just based on like, yeah, we didn't... just, we had to bring in money faster. Got it. And, um, yeah. And so at that point with a, I mean, you run out of money, the numbers are good, but you're running out of money. So did you do, did you do a bigger raise then right we after did another round? Yeah, we raised 750K that like summer, towards the end of that summer. And one of our investors in our first round wrote a 250K check and he wrote a 250,000. No, he wrote a 25K check the first round in the 450 round. Then he ran a 250, he wrote a $250,000 check in the 750 round. And that led the next round. And because of what I had learned from other people on like sending out a monthly email to your investors, that second round of 750. For one, when we closed that round, we had $753,000 in the bank. So like when you talk about like timing, like we were right there and from start to finish, it took three weeks to close because we had kept people so informed on what we were doing and people just appreciated how open and honest we were with everything. So what is, what did you do? You send, you send a monthly update letter to your investors? Yep. Yeah, this is like, yeah, this is the most, it's a mail drip, it's a a MailChimp, it's a drip campaign on a monthly basis. We still do it. We send out an email with like what's happened the last month, what we're looking for the next month, like just in general highlights on the business. And that, there was one of our investors. So part of that 750K came in, we won a pitch contest in Montreal called Startup Fest. So you get $100,000 for the prize, which is actually a $10,000 investment from 10 different people, which is like a complete headache for the cap table. Like looking back, like it's like, okay, this should be communicated way differently. It wasn't a $100,000 gift. Exactly. Got it's it. it's way different. We knew it was an investment, but we didn't know it would be from 10 different people, 10K each. Yeah. So it is what it is. We needed it to survive. But the further down the road, I think this was like, I don't know. So that, that all happened in 2017. And in 2018, one of those investors who I never met and who was like very wealthy, has a bunch of real estate, a bunch of restaurants in Toronto, sends me an email after one of my investor updates. And he's like, hey, give me a call like as soon as you can. This is my phone number. So I call him. He's like, hey, Josh, I'm so-and-so. We haven't met yet. But I just want to let you know that because of how transparent you are on these monthly updates, like I appreciate it so much. And 
if you end up doing something else, if this doesn't work, like, let me know. Cause I'll fund you. And he's like, I've written way bigger checks into a lot of other people. And I just don't ever hear from them again. So this is like, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I would assume that a lot of the other investors do too. And it's just like a simple monthly email about what's happening in the business. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And what are, how am I as a CEO thinking about the next month? And how long is it? Like how many, it's like literally just typed up. There's no, it's not fancy. It's sometimes just... I'll put pictures in. Sometimes I'll put gifts. I started off putting gifts. One of our investors now has said that like, they know that the business is doing well now because we say less. Like before we were just telling a story about nothing and like putting gifts in and like making it funny. And now we're actually like, here are the metrics. Like we don't want to share anything else. But no, like sometimes it was like four or five paragraphs. I mean, we went through so much. Like we went through tech stars with... Uh, Target in Minneapolis, like that was a big thing. We got a pilot with Loblaws. Like there were some really meaningful things that happened for us. So I would say it's probably like if you read off of Medium, it's probably like a five to seven minute read every time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I have been involved. There's a few companies that I've been involved in that did that, and I found it really helpful. And uh, I do have some investments out there right now that I don't get as I, I get updates when I ask for them. Yeah. Uh, good or bad, I feel like I'd rather know. I'd be I'd rather be along for the journey than like surprise. Here's an update at the end of the year. So that's a good practice. It's funny. That's actually what like our most of our angel investors get value in just being part of the ride because they're just like, I don't want to go through it or I can't go through it. Like I've got kids at home. Like I can't drop everything and start a company. But yeah, I'll give you ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. Just let me feel like I'm a part of this and. From what I've learned from our investor groups, awesome. And like, sure, like people ask me questions and I'm like, leave me alone. Like, wait till the update. And like, that happens. <laughs> like, we have like 60 people on our cap table now. The other thing, too, is everybody tells you not to raise from that many people, but like, good luck trying not to go bankrupt. So, do whatever you have to do to survive. But our investor group is like, because I'm so open and transparent, like, they appreciate it and they're having fun and they're along for the ride with me. So, like, they're in it right beside me. Yeah, that's great. Something that strikes me about just your whole story is you're just doing it your own way. You know, you're not doing it the way that you think you should or just doing it authentically and unapologetically in your own way. I think that's awesome. I have a friend who's, uh, yeah, I mean, like there's so many stories. There was one where this one's actually probably meaningful. We're meeting with a VC and this VC is, this guy was a, a JD MBA, like came up through finance and ended up being like a an associate at a VC fund and then a principal at like a reputable VC fund. So he's like, why have you not scaled faster in Canadian grocery? And I'm like, hmm, well, Canadian grocery, like it's oligopolistic. It's basically like white male. And I said like big expletive, like, like complex, like big ego complex. And he cuts me off and he's like, don't ever say that to me because you'll never say that to a grocery executive. So don't say it here. And as soon as he said it, I was like, hmm, like, actually, like, I don't know if I ever would or not. Fast forward, like, literally a month later, it's me, somebody that I'm trying to get to invest in my company that I have and ended up getting, but like tried for like two years. And we're sitting in front of two, like the CEO and the COO of one of the biggest retail companies in Canada in like one of the biggest, yeah, a big company. And they're just like, why have you not scaled faster in like Canadian grocery? And I like kind of like hold on my lap and I'm like, well, like you guys would know it's like white male like big expletive complex and they just both broke out laughing they're like 
yeah, okay, like we get it. So what I learned by having so many investors and like having really good people in our company that are employees that are like, well, like partners with me is that <laughs> I'm going to talk to so many different people that like, I just can't lie. And I have to be myself because even if I wanted to lie, I would catch myself in a lot. Like I, there's just too many people that I, that are, are accountable to me. So well, what I've learned is like, you have to be yourself. And from a sales perspective, like when you sit across from somebody at a grocery chain and you're just telling them how it is, it's so much more effective. Like the story, the sales process, like we now get to a point where it's like, listen, like if you don't care about this issue, like we're not going to be partners because it's just, it's going to waste our time and you don't want to sell your garbage that you're going to throw out at a discount. So being authentic, I think now, and like Mark Cuban said it too, like being nice is really overlooked in, in business, but I think it's critically important because basically the way that we got Loblaws is I'm sitting across from one of the executives. I finally got in front of the right person and I tell her the story. This is kind of the same way that we talked. How did you get there? Is it cold oh email, cold God. call? No. Separate. Okay, we'll we'll come back to that one. Yeah, I mean, like I could I could go into it because it's like relatively quick. In brief, how did you get the meeting with Loblaw? I because got asked, like I got asked by a PR company to speak at Nestle's employee day for like a thousand people, and then they're like, "How much do you charge?" And I'm like, "Broke at this point." I'm like, "Ah, uh, this number." Like made it up. They're like, "Okay, yeah, like we want you to come do this. You're gonna do like a Q and A on stage with our CEO for 15 minutes." So I take the CEO out for coffee after Shelly Martin. And I'm like, listen, I'm trying so hard to get into law blah. I was like, can you introduce me to the right people? She introduces me to a guy named Grant Fraze, the former COO. I take him for breakfast. He's like, this person's the right person that you need to talk to. I'll introduce you to her. I meet her. We talk for 15, 20 minutes. I tell her the exact same story I've told everybody else. And she looks at me and she's like, I think my son would love to shop this way. I think he'd feel really good about it. Like, we're going to try this. Like that's how it all happened. It wasn't like a, like for us, it's like check the money box, like sure, whatever. But like, this is just the right thing to do. You shouldn't be throwing out this food. And if we could do it by driving people into your store and spending more money, like you should just be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you got the meeting, you were, you were in the meeting, uh, you were talking about being like authentically you in a meeting, getting to lo the Loblaws meeting. Yeah. It was just like, it was just. It's, it's still the exact same, like I, whoever I've met in these organizations and through time now, actually there's, there's another side story that's probably meaningful. Uh, we got into Techstars retail. So Techstars is like a three month incubator. And why that's important is we got into the cohort that's partnered with Target in the US. And so they pick 10 companies, they fly you out to Minneapolis, you work at a Target's head office. And from week two to week four, you have this thing called mentor madness. So you meet with 10 different people a day for 20 minutes and they poke holes in your business. And then they get to pick after if they want to be a lead mentor for you. And that means they work with you through the three months and help your business out. In one of those days at this cohort, we had executive day. So we had five of the top 10 people at Target that we would meet with. So I ended up getting the chief strategy officer of Target and the CEO, Brian Cornell, as my lead mentor. Brian Cornell grew up without money. His, his dad passed away when he was young. His mom was on welfare. He, he's the CEO of Target. His mom was on welfare. She gave him up to his grandparents because she couldn't afford even having him. And he had a really difficult upbringing. So the day before this like mentor madness, like executive day, I didn't sleep for a single second. And I'm like, if I can't sell this guy who came up with nothing on the concept of what we're doing, like I have to shut the business down because it's just, it's not going to hit. And sure enough, like 
he ended up being like, yeah, I love this. And it was the same way that this person at Loblaws, like you just have to get to the right people for what we're doing. And they're just like, yep, check the financial box. Okay. Like money. Sure. But this is the right thing to do. And yeah, like the CEO of Target and I, like he'll get back to my emails almost immediately. And I fly down still once a quarter, try to, to meet with him in person for 20 minutes. And we just sit down and like, and I just ask him a whole bunch of questions. He tells me what he thinks. And then I usually cut the the meeting shorter because I give him back his time and he appreciates it. And that's what gets him like to consistently answer me, I think. <laughs> yeah. There's like different sales models for different companies, right? But I think yours is, especially in the early days to get a company bought in at this level, like you're not going to get that from a summer analysts doing cold calls to the, you know, middle management. I think it you you have to go about it the way that you've been going about it for this one. It feels yeah. that way. Yeah. So if you were to think back, what were some of the best parts and worst parts over the last few years of getting this company going? Like what are the, some of the highlights, the highlight reel of some of the, the super high highs mm-hmm. and what have been some of the most challenging things? So I'll say two things and then I'll go into that answer. The first is that every day is the best day of my life and every day is the worst day of my life. And it's all the time that never goes away. So you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. The other thing, and I don't know if this is teed up that you're going to ask or not, but what I did at the beginning before I quit my job, when I had the idea was I told every one of the smartest people that I knew about it and they all poked holes on it and said like, this is bad about it. This is bad about it. This is bad about it. And what that did at the earliest phase was it like vetted through a bunch of bad ideas that I had and it got me to like that that team in China that built the first version of the app. It wasn't good, but it was very simple because I had asked as many smart people as I could about what they thought and they gave their honest opinion. So a lot of people will tell you like, keep your idea close to your chest. To me, I think it's the complete opposite. Nobody's going to copy you. Like that doesn't really happen for companies that have nothing. Tell as many smart people as you can and get holes poked in it. The highlights... Man, like we have one of our top customers is a young mother with three kids. And she's like, my husband, uh, like our husband just got laid off from work. Like we can't afford food. Like our kids never eat the kind of stuff. Like they've never even tried some of the stuff that we're buying through flash food now. And like some of those reviews, like that's just, we had, that's the stuff that matters to me. Like that and the environmental piece, like the fact that even if right now, we can't scale this internationally and all that we are is like a grocery platform for Loblaws, the biggest grocer in Canada to reduce their food waste as significantly as they, as they are. Like it's millions of millions of pounds of food that otherwise would have been thrown out. Like even the environmental angle of that to me, it's like, we've already, like we've kind of already not made it, but like we've put a dent in this. And even if all that happens is a bunch of copycats come out and copy what we're doing and it's effective everywhere. And like, I, th- I still think we're driving a lot of value to a big partner. Like we'll be okay. We'll do well, but the market will copy this. And like, that's a win collectively for everyone. So the biggest wins is like seeing how much this affects people. Like some people are saving thousands of dollars like annually, which is awesome. The biggest losses, hmm, firing people is really tough. Firing people and, uh, which like sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's not. But one of the, like, I had to let go of a friend of mine just because, like, she came on too early. We had too many people. There wasn't enough for her to do. And, like, sitting across from her, having to let her go, like, that was really difficult. That was probably the, probably the most difficult thing. But outside of that, like, I don't think that you get a high output from people if you, like, if you make things to, like, life or death. 
I think that work has to be even keel and you'll have your highest amount of output if you have ownership of what you're doing. So I guess one of the challenging things is like as a CEO and learning to be a CEO, you have to relinquish basically everything. Like I still think I could do a lot of things better than other people can in particular categories of our business, like specific things. But if I do them, then I'm a worse CEO because I haven't given other people the ability to grow and do those things better than me. And the ROI of like what some people are doing now is like so much better than what I would have done. So being able to relinquish that was really difficult, but I learned it because I had a really high level team and they're like, let me do this or like I'm leaving. And I'm like, okay, that's enough. All right, you can do it. So how many people now in the company? We went from seven last December to like 35 now. So what do you, as a CEO of a growing, yeah. well-funded, you yeah. know, 35 person company, yeah. what do you, what do you do? Like what should a CEO of a company that size be spending his time on or her time on? Making sure that things aren't breaking in communication. So keeping people accountable, driving people to like why we're doing what we're doing, like reminding people of that every week. So we have a weekly stand up on Friday and then, uh, keeping the calendar, like keeping the bar high. So Netflix, I don't know if you've read much about like Netflix's HR. Yeah. So Netflix will like only hire good people that'll do like the best job. And if they can't fulfill like Netflix's high caliber, they'll let them go, but they'll pay them more than they have to. And they'll help them find the next place. Like that's ultimately like what I want to do and like create, but also at the same time, I want to develop people and I want people to like get there. So what do I do? Like I was in Dallas this week. I was in Minneapolis last week. I'm still at the point where it's me and one other person who are doing partnerships and trying to get in front of more grocers. And that is the most important thing that we could be doing right now because we've done this in Canada. Now, if we want to be now, it's less about like, will this work or not? Because we're past that. Like every metric is so solid. And I say that humbly, but now it's like, how big can we build this business? So it's kind of a different challenge where like, how many people can we get in front of that are meaningful people in the US specifically? And how quickly can we execute on, on the US like we did in Canada? And can we even do it or not? Yeah. So it's around like, just making sure people are happy and motivated and then also just not letting everything break if I can. Yeah. It's been a cool story to see because I mean, a, a year ago, you and I were on a panel in Growth TO yeah. and... Uh, you were working on trying to get that first major partnership. So to, I told you that the reason that I knew it was doing well was not that you'd raise money, not that you had 20 more employees on LinkedIn, not that there were new logos on your website. Mm -hmm. The reason I knew that you were doing well is because good people, I know good people have joined your company and stayed. And there are people outside of, you know, the tech community that in my own friend groups have shared with me, hey, there's this cool new app that I'm using. So it's being picked up. The partnerships are happening. It feels like all the leading indicators are good. And that's why I think it's cool to bring you on the show now because you're sort of like right in the middle of this journey. Mm -hmm. Who knows where it ends up, but it's cool to take a snapshot or a picture in time of where you're at today. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's, listen, it's, it's exciting and like it could still all blow up. It seems like it's less and less likely to blow up. But yeah, like, I mean, it's working. Like, I'm really, like, living the startup dream right now, and especially from the fact that, like, we don't need capital. So it's also very different being on the other side of the table where an investor, where anybody is trying to sell you money and you don't need money because it's not going to fuel growth. Like, that in of itself is a really, really strange place to be. But yeah, like, things are, like, things are going well. Like, they could blow up at any time, but, like, 
it's it's going all right right now. That's great. So now that we, we've got a, our listener base is growing nicely, is there anything that the community can do for you? What can we do to help? Where can we find flash food? Let's start with that. Flash food is across the country uh, in a whole bunch of grocery stores. Superstore, uh, we're going to be adding other banners next year. Loblaws we're in, Zayers we're in, basically like a lot of the Loblaws own banners across the country. And you could download it on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Actually, follow us on Instagram at Flash Food Inc. We're at like 9,400. Let's get it to 10. Exactly. Well, if we, I think it's like 9,000. I think we're like 70 people away. But once you get to 10,000, there's a whole bunch of other features that open up. So that's what we, that's like that's the really the big ass. That's <laughs> the big thing. So at Flash Food Inc., all one word, that would be cool. Follow that. Uh, are you hiring? Yeah, we're always hiring. So. I don't even know what the roles are. Like when you ask about what a CEO does, it's just like, hey, what do we need for different people to be easier at their job? So if people are bought on to the mission, always hiring for good roles, yep. if it's not up on the website, keep in touch. Yeah. Flashfood.com. Uh, we have a whole like careers page or just like send us an email with your resume and, and we're in Toronto. Like, yeah. Yeah. Reach out to us. Cool. Hey, I uh, appreciate you taking the time to share this snapshot in time of your journey. And I think your all the leading indicators look pretty good. So wishing you guys best of luck in the next chapter. Yeah, thanks. It's cool to be at the snapshot of like this point and seeing you again after like you saw basically like the clutch and grab and scratch and like, all right, we got to this phase. We'll see where it goes next. But uh, yeah, it's cool to run into you. We'll again. do episode in, uh, we'll do the chapter three episode yeah. at some point in the yeah. future. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Awesome. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.